Hey guys, that is a good looking guy in that video at the end there, right? Man. Uh, we've been doing this series of messages on the church, just started last week. We're going to go on for the next uh, until Jesus comes back or sometime between now and then. Um, and I ran across an interesting statistic this week I thought I would share with you. Uh, on the average weekend in America, 120 million people attend a church worship service. Now, you go, okay, is that a lot? Is that a little? That's kind of hard to put your mind around. Let me give you some uh, context. That is more people than will attend all of the professional sporting events in America this year combined. Every weekend, that many people attend a worship service. I also saw that two billion people worldwide are members of a church family. Those are big numbers. And it sort of begs a question, why? Why are people so interested in doing something like that? Why would somebody attend a worship service in the first place? And there's probably a ton of reasons for that. There's a lot of people, undoubtedly, who are in church on Sunday mornings out of habit. It's just what they do. It's in their schedule. That's what their Sunday looks like. There are people who do it out of tradition. There's unquestionably people who do it out of a sense of duty. Um, and some people are doing it because they're trying to please somebody else who's trying to convince them to do it. Um, some people are doing it out of a sense of guilt if they don't go and all of that kind of stuff. If somebody were to ask you, just a thought inside of your head, if somebody were to ask you, hey, why do you attend worship services? Why are you a part of a local church? I wonder what you would say. Last week, I introduced this series of messages um, on the church from Scripture, and we're kind of uh, visiting different spots in Scripture to talk about what the church is, what God's view of the church is, what God's plan for the church is, what God's vision for the church is. And we mentioned last week, if you ask the average person what the church is, they would point you to a building. And I heard some brilliant person one time say, the church is not... <laughs> the building. <laughs> Some people, if you ask them to tell you what our church is, they would think in terms of an institution, an organization, kind of like any business or any nonprofit or, or something like that. If you ask other people what church is to them, they would talk about a program or a series of programs that they participate in or know something about. The truth of the matter, though, is that all of those things, though they may have something to do with the church, fall radically short of a biblical definition of what the church is. See, Jesus said, I will build my church. Whose church? His church, right? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So if we are his church, then shouldn't he get to define who the church is? Shouldn't he have a say in the matter of what the church is all about? So if we're going to take Jesus seriously when he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, then we're going to have to actually go to his word and ask him what he has to say about his 
church? What is God's view of the church? What is God's vision of the church? What does the scripture tell us about the church? And if we're looking for a biblical definition, there are probably a hundred good ones that you could come up with depending on what passages you're looking at. But let me just give us a working definition that I think encompasses all of that. I would say this, the church is not a building that I go to or an event that I attend. It is a spiritual family to which I belong. Okay, so let's get that straight in our heads. And, and you know me, I'm very repetitive. I'll probably say this every week of this series. But I want us to remember when I'm talking about the church, that's what I'm talking about. Buildings come and go. Some churches have buildings. Some churches don't have buildings. Some churches are meeting out in the middle of the woods underneath the tree. Every time I'm in Africa, I find myself in a church service under a big tree in the shade somewhere with people gathered all around. And there are no buildings and no thought that we would have a building and no idea that we would need a building in order to be the church. We are just the church. And we gather together. Now, is it bad to have church buildings? Of course not. It's very helpful in the things that we're trying to accomplish. Hopefully, we're using the facilities that churches uh, have stewardship over to do the things that God wants us to do. But that's not what it is. It is a spiritual family to which I belong. So it doesn't matter if we're gathered together as the church or if we're scattered in the workplace and in our homes, in our communities and neighborhoods, we are still the church. The church is a spiritual family to which I belong. And as we discovered in our study called The Gospel According to Romans, which we just finished up a couple of weeks ago, if you are a Christian, it is because God graciously adopted you, right? And we talked about this in great detail um, several weeks ago. What does it look like when God adopts us into his family and what does that mean for us? So we are adopted, but when you're adopted, you don't just receive new parents, you receive a whole family, right? That includes brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, all of that kind of stuff, and you become a part of a whole new family. The Bible talks about us, the church, talks about us and calls us joint heirs with Jesus. What are joint heirs? They're siblings who inherit from the Father. We're joint heirs with Jesus. It says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It says that together we form the household of the faith. In other words, we are in this together. Now look around you. Look around you. Look at some of these people. Get used to them because you're stuck with them. We are in this together. And if you're uncomfortable with the fact that the person next to you belongs to a different political party than you do, or if you're uncomfortable with the fact that the person sitting next to you is from a different generation than you are, or if you are uncomfortable with the fact that the person sitting next to you has a different skin tone than you have, or that the person sitting next to you has a different first language than you have, or, or embraces a different culture than you do, then I would suggest to you that you get over that really fast because heaven's forever and we're all gonna be there. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We're a part of this whole family and we're in this thing together. 
So if we're going to get a biblical picture of this, I think one of the clearest pictures of the church that we're ever going to find in Scripture is at the end of Acts chapter chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn to the book of Acts. Now, if you're not familiar with the order of the books in your Bible, Acts is in the New Testament, which is toward the back. And it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So get through those first four big books. You'll find the book of Acts. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at this picture that we get at the end of Acts chapter 2. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be referring to this again and again. But I want us to get the whole context. So I'm going to do 10 or 11 verses here together. And so I want you to just follow along. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Before we start to read, let me give you the context. Uh, What has just happened is that the Holy Spirit has made his splash, right? Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he told his followers to wait for him in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and not to try to do anything until the Holy Spirit comes, because apart from him, you can do nothing right? So they're praying and worshiping and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Suddenly there is a sound that the Bible describes as a sound like a violent rushing wind. Not a wind, but a sound that sounds like a hurricane force gale, and it gets everyone's attention. Now, it is the Feast of Pentecost, which is a huge um, holiday in the Jewish world. So people have come from all over the place. In fact, if you skip back to verse, let me see, like 9, 10, something like that. Yeah, go to verse 9 of chapter 2. These are, this is a brief description of some of the people that are in town for this event. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts around Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. That's a pretty diverse group of people, right? They've come from all over. Why? Because it's the Feast of Pentecost. It's one of the major feasts on the Jewish calendar. And people have come from all these different countries in order to worship. And while they are there, they hear this sound like a violent rushing wind. And they say, let's go figure out what that is. And the crowd just drops what they're doing. And people just get up and leave. And they start moving in the direction of the sound. And they come to the place where the disciples are. And they see what the Bible describes as something like tongues as of fire resting above the heads of the apostles and the apostles are preaching and each one of them is hearing them in his own language. Wow, the Holy Spirit has arrived. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the birth of the church. And when this happens, everybody goes, what in the world is going on? And some guy goes, oh, these people are drunk. And Peter stands up and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, these people are not drunk as you assume. It's just nine o'clock in the morning. This is what Joel prophesied about. And then he preaches a sermon, apparently, off the top of his head from the book of Joel. Now, if you think you could preach a good sermon off the top of your head from the book of Joel, you are impressive. Peter stands up from the book of Joel, which most of us couldn't even find in our Bibles if he gave us five minutes, and he stands up and says, this is what Joel prophesied would happen, and he He gives him this sermon, and in this sermon he says, and you guys crucified the Messiah, 
And they're all, they're all um, convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so their response is in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the, par- the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, Those who had received his word were baptized that day, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's a lot there. And we're going to dig deeper into that stuff in the weeks to come. But for now, let me just summarize what we just read there about the original church that God planted. A local church, according to this passage, seems to be a family of baptized believers in Jesus with single-minded devotion to the worship of God, to learning and living by the word of God, to loving one another, and to God's mission in the world. That was this local church. That's what they seemed to be about. Now, let's clear up any confusion about baptism right from the beginning, because uh, multiple times in that passage, it mentions baptism. And in the definition or working definition I just gave you, I said that the church is a family of baptized believers. And you might be going, hey, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Um, Baptism doesn't save anybody, right? Baptism doesn't make someone a Christian, right? And you would be right. We, knew, we know this from the whole teaching of the New Testament, and sometime we'll do another study on it, but we, from the whole teaching of the Scripture we, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by any religious work that we might accomplish in order to impress God, right? So baptism doesn't save you, but that doesn't mean that it's not a very, very important aspect of your salvation, That is not a very important aspect of the Christian life. We know from the example of Jesus, who, by the way, got baptized. We know from the Great Commission in which he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We know from the practice of the New Testament church where it seems that just about every time new people came into the body of Christ, that one of the first things they did was have a baptism. That's exactly what they did in this passage here in Acts chapter 2. We know from the teaching of the apostles throughout the epistles that um, baptism 
is a very, very important step of obedience in the life of someone who has come to follow Jesus. So while it is easy to swing the pendulum too far and think, boy, if you don't get baptized, you're not gonna get to heaven, I would encourage you to tell that story to the thief on the cross next to Jesus who was told, today you'll be with me in paradise. But we can also swing the pendulum the other way and go, oh, it's just one of those ancient religious rituals and you know what, it's all about grace and it's all about my buddy Jesus and me and him hanging out together and it doesn't have anything to do with all of these religious activities. No, the truth of the matter is that scripture says baptism is a very, very important mark of the Christian church. So that's why we get baptized. Um, It's an outward expression of an inward transformation. And it's one of the evidences of a life that has been submitted to the Lordship of Christ who commands us to be baptized. So baptism doesn't bring about salvation, make no mistake, but it is an act of obedience that gives evidence of salvation. That's why I say local church is a family of baptized believers. And by the way, if if you want to know more about baptism, what does the Bible teach about baptism? What does our church believe about baptism? Uh, On our website, which is graceduarty.com, you click on connect, it will take you down to I'm interested in baptism. You click on that and there's a video there that I've done teaching on the biblical idea of baptism and how it works in our lives. So you might want to check that out on your own time. But in short, the end of the book, uh, the end of Acts chapter two gives us a great picture of a healthy, vibrant, growing, world-changing local church family. We don't have to do everything that they did in just the way that they did it. This is not a prescriptive passage, but it is a descriptive passage that helps us to understand what this healthy church looked like when the Holy Spirit planted them in Jerusalem. Um, And as I said, this is a picture of a group of people who had single-minded devotion to these things. Have you ever been involved in anything that required extreme devotion? Something you set your mind to and it took a massive commitment in order to carry it out? A couple weeks ago, uh, I went up to Seattle to uh, spend some time with my brothers and also take in some baseball games and see our friend Ty France, who plays for the Mariners up there. And uh, Ty and I were talking on the field before one of the games, and uh, I I said to him, hey, we're going to probably go to dinner after this uh, game. Where's a good restaurant? The guy lives in Seattle. His answer to me was, he pointed at the clubhouse. He goes, when I'm in this town, I'm either in the clubhouse or I'm on the field or I'm home in bed. I don't know anything about this city. I don't know anything about, I couldn't tell you where to go to dinner. I couldn't tell you where to catch a train. I couldn't tell you what's a fun tourist thing to do. I couldn't tell you, I don't really know. I just live here because I am... Now I'm putting words in his mouth because I am completely devoted to my career as a baseball player. He's there to play baseball. And when he said that, it brought my mind back to my days as a baseball player. And um, I I didn't make it quite as far as Ty. Um, 
But, and, I, and I realize when, when you look at me, you go, now that is the body of a great athlete. I know that's what you think. Um, or maybe you don't. But, but I can tell you once upon a time, back in the good old days, and, and what's, the, what's the thing they say? The older I get, the better I was. So the way I remember it, uh, I was, I was a good athlete and I was uh, c- committed to uh, the sports that I played and all that kind of stuff. Now, I have a brother who's two years older than me. And uh, you guys, uh, if you've been around here for a while, have heard about him. The poor guy, every time he meets somebody from our church, they give him a hug and say, we're so sorry you had to grow up with this guy um, because I tortured him and made life difficult for him. He is two years older than me, but he was always smaller than me. So I was this big, sort of athletic, strong guy that was bigger than all the other kids my age, and two years older, by the time I was nine or 10, I was bigger than him. And so we played, I played all of my sports at at the level of his age, and we played together, and I was the big brother, and he was the little brother, or so people thought. The interesting thing about this is that he had a much more successful baseball career than I did. Because I played baseball and he was totally devoted to baseball. And, and for me, I would like go to the beach on a game day and get sunburned and then come back and feel like I can't even hardly play. He wouldn't do any of that kind of stuff because he had to swing a bat in the backyard a thousand times a day before he would let himself go to bed. He would lay in bed, we shared a room, and he would lay in, in, in bed on his back with a baseball in his hand, and he would just toss it up and catch it, toss it up and catch it, toss it up and catch it, just to get the rotation correct on the ball and to get his wrist used to doing that because he was a catcher and he liked to throw to second base fast. And so the point of this is he went further in baseball, though I was the better athlete, because I just dabbled in the game and he devoted himself to the game. Guys, whatever area of your life that has called for that level of devotion, you could fill in your own story there. The point is this. There are some things in life that just take extreme devotion. And I would love to be able to stand up here and sell you a story about how Jesus has done everything for you and he requires nothing of you and he asks nothing of you and he expects nothing of you except to show up on time in heaven when you die. But that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the people who were the church, the family of God, were radically devoted to God and to his work through the church. One of the things you don't often hear in sermons is that if you're gonna walk with Jesus, he demands serious devotion. The Christian life cannot be lived half-heartedly. It can't. And, And that's not... Great news for a lot of people to hear. And frankly, that's not the news that a lot of people in our country are used to hearing pastors talk about. 
because we're trying to build a bigger congregation. We're trying to attract more people. We're trying to sell something with our TV time and all of that kind of stuff. And we want to draw a bigger crowd, draw a bigger crowd, draw a bigger crowd. And the way you draw a big crowd is to promise them everything and ask nothing. The problem is Jesus gives you everything and asks everything. To be a Christian is to give your life to Christ. That's part of the picture of baptism, that when we go down into the water, we are identifying with his death. It's the death of the old self. It is the birth of a new person, the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of us. It's our hope of resurrection with him. So that's what he's calling us to. The Christian life can't be lived halfway. And when Jesus was asked to boil down the most important principles in life, he didn't just say, love God. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And, and he didn't just say, and by the way, you should try to love others also. He said, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now think about that for a second. To love your neighbor as yourself. People read that today and they go, see, we all just need to love ourselves more. This is God's way of saying you got to love yourself before you can love other people, right? Guys, that's not what it's saying. What Jesus is saying is, hey, everybody, listen, you know how you already totally love yourself? You know how you take care of yourself? You know how you keep yourself from danger? You know how you go after things for yourself? You know how you make sure you get fed and you get clothed and you get housed and you get taken care of? You know how you always watch out for yourself? Love your neighbor like that. Love your neighbor the way you already love yourself. Now, does that sound like a halfway proposition? Does that sound like some kind of easy believism? That this is just a, um, just get on the bus and Jesus takes you the rest of the way? Christianity, my friends, is by definition a wholehearted venture. But in the church, sometimes we're afraid to say that. We're afraid to say it for fear that it's going to scare people away. And by the way, Jesus said it a lot. And you know what the result was? It scared people away. And he didn't seem to mind. He didn't seem to be willing to water down the truth of this in order to make sure that everybody enjoyed him. And you remember, they came, they came by the thousands. They heard he was giving away free sandwiches, right? The kid had fish and bread and they, they fed 4,000. And the crowds were just delighted with that. They heard about the healings and how the demons were cast out and all of the wonderful things that he did for people. And, and they came to him in droves. And you know what Jesus did? The bigger the crowd got, every time he would say something that would be so hard for them to hear that they would go, maybe it's not worth following this guy. And, and while we in Christian leadership today are all about building a bigger crowd, Jesus seemed to be intentional about shrinking the crowd and devoting himself to 12 guys to whom he said, you must follow me. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. He said to them, if you decide to follow me, 
however much they persecute me, they will persecute you too. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. There was a guy who wanted to follow Jesus, but he said, you know, my dad died and I need to be here to settle the estate and do the funeral and all that, and that takes some time. So Jesus, I'll catch up with you later. And Jesus looked this guy in the eye, a mourner, and said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. That's not going to win any popularity contests. And, and is Jesus being unloving? Is he being uncaring? No, he's saying, I actually understand some stuff that you don't understand. And a life following me of total devotion is actually more important than all the things that you think are so important. He taught that everyone has to consider the high cost of discipleship. Just like when a builder is going to build a building, he has to first do all the work to figure out how much is it going to cost to build this building. And Jesus actually chased people away with these kinds of statements. This is not exactly that easy believism that you can catch on TV on a Sunday afternoon today. To be a part of the family of God is filled with blessings. It's filled with benefits. But it is also costly, and it involves full devotion. And you know what's funny? We pastors are really uncomfortable saying that because we don't want to drive people away. But you know what? Those of you who are parents, school started this week, last week, right? It's the time for school to start. You think the PTA might get in touch with you and ask you to get fully devoted? I bet they do. Your kid wants to go out for football? You think they're going to require of him that he gets fully devoted? If you're a parent of a high school student who wants to be in the marching band, they're going to ask you for a check for at least five grand up front or else you're going to have to sell, I don't know, candy bars and bumper stickers for the rest of your life. Everybody seems to be willing to ask for our devotion, um, our homeowners association. You're going to do it this way, and don't tell me you're not going to do it this way, and come to the meetings and volunteer and help out and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, does your boss at work ever expect you to actually commit? It's amazing where all around us, people are asking us to be fully devoted to things that might be good things, but they pale in comparison to being fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his work in the world. And so I don't know if any of you are going to show up next week, <laughs> but I'm just going to be straight from the word of God and go, you know what? It actually is a surrender of your life to be a follower of Jesus. It's a trait of your life for his, your broken life, for his living water. Look at the first century church. They did life together. That passage that we just read, they took their meals together. They daily went and worshiped together. They did ministry together. It says they sold their own private property in order to meet the needs of other people. That was just normal. That was just regular. And you think, man, how did they find the time to do all of this kind of stuff? And the simple answer to that is they were devoted. They were devoted to Christ, so they were devoted to the local church above their hobbies, 
above their jobs, even above their relatives. They were devoted to Jesus and they were devoted to one another and their lives were filled with joy and peace and adventure and power and significance and all the things that make life worth living. Now compare that to the speeches that our politicians make at election time. And see if I can illustrate this without making any party mad at me. I don't care what party your guy is from. Just about every politician at election time makes a speech that you could boil down to this. Vote for me, I will give you everything and it will cost you nothing. Is that not right? Is that not what they're saying? Hey, vote for me, I'll pay off all your loans. Oh, really? Where are we going to? We will tax the people who are not you. Oh, well, I guess I vote for you. That sounds like a great plan to me. Okay, you know, vote for me and we will make sure that you have uh, all of your bills paid. Vote for me and we will make sure that your schools improve. Vote for me and, and, and everything is if you vote for me, I will make everything better for you and I'm asking nothing of you except that you vote for me. And we all look at that. I hope we all look at that and go, that is hogwash. Life doesn't work that way, does it? In your experience, does life work that way? No. That is just... <laughs> that is what comes out of the south end of a north-facing bull. <laughs> Did I, am I fired? Is that okay? I, okay. You know, um, life's not like that. A life that has impact is a life of devotion. And you know what? There are a lot of important things to be devoted to. The scripture tells us that we should be devoted to our families. We should be devoted um, to things that matter. We should be devoted to one another. We should be devoted to serving people. But what we really need to be devoted to is Christ and therefore involved in the things that are important to him. Amen. And guys, as a church, as a local community of believers, I'll just tell you, we are so far from perfect. I, I don't want to be held up and scrutinized and go, well, how come you made this decision, that decision? Listen, we are far from perfect. But I'll tell you this, we are striving to be a church that is about the things of God more than we're about the things of ourselves. That means we're gonna love others more than we love ourselves. That means we are going to use resources in order to serve the community. It means that we are going to give up our preferences in order to meet the needs of other people. That's what it is to be the church. Jesus calls us to be devoted to him and to the local church. Let's get back, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were devoted, continually devoted. And that doesn't mean they didn't have their own lives. And it doesn't mean they didn't have jobs and they didn't have families. It just means that they lived those lives in the context 
of devotion to Christ and to the local church. Guys, please, 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 let's get past this place where we separate our religious selves from our secular selves. Let's get past this place where we think, when I go to work, I'm a worker, and when I come to church, I'm a worshiper. Guys, you're a child of God wherever you go. We are ambassadors for Christ. Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. Go out into dark places and shine the glory of Christ. It's not just when we gather together. My goodness, we gather together just a couple hours a week. If the pastor goes long, maybe a little longer. But, but we're separated most of the time. The light of the world disperses where it's needed the most. We need to be devoted to him in every situation. So yeah, we're gonna have jobs. We're gonna have hobbies. We're gonna have people that we just hang out with and like to do things with. We're gonna watch our favorite TV shows and our favorite team when they play. All of, there's nothing wrong with all of that, but wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are a child of God first and foremost. That's what it is to be devoted. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who um, had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. When was the last time you were awestruck by God in something he was doing in your life? In an age where divisiveness is the rule of the day, how great would it be to have people be able to say about us, we have all things in common? What a light that would be to a world that has nothing in common. How about in a time where everybody seems to be arguing about just about everything? What would it be like to have people be able to say of us, they are of one mind? It doesn't mean that we think the same way about every topic. It means that we are pursuing the mind of Christ and that whatever is important to him is important to us. And so what would it be like in a world where nobody seems to agree, nobody seems to be able to get along, if they could see that the people of God are the example of those who are single-minded and devoted to the things that God says are important? And what happens when a local church family lives like that? The world is transformed and lives are changed for eternity. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Imagine, could somebody say that about the church in America today? That the church has favor with all the people, not just those who agree with us. Sure doesn't seem that way to me. They were praising God and they had favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. On this day, 3,000 people were swept into the kingdom in one hour. And then every day after that, more people were coming to Christ. Every day. And the city was standing back and looking and going, oh, we've never seen anything like this before. What is this about? And people were drawn to God. 
And that's a glimpse of what the local church has the potential to be and to do. So let me ask you this. What are you doing with your life that is more important, more compelling, more life-changing, and more flat-out thrilling than that? And with all that in mind, I'll leave you with this question. What are you devoted to? To whom are you devoted? Your answer to that question will explain a lot about where your life is at right now. And if that were to change and come in line with God's definition of what you ought to be devoted to, your future will be like nothing you've ever seen in your past. Fully devoted followers of Jesus, joining arms together, being the light of the world, changes eternity. And God's invited you and me together as one big funky family to carry the torch. What an incredible blessing. Let me invite you to stand and I'll pray for you. God, it is such an amazing privilege when we stop and think about all that you've done to make us your family. It's incredible to think that you could possibly love us so much. So we just want to say thank you. You are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be honored. And I ask your guidance as we grapple with how do I apply this stuff? How do I actually live a life that is fully devoted to Christ, that is fully devoted as a part of the family of God? Lord, we struggle because there are, there's pressures and, and people pulling on us from every direction and it is not easy for us to figure all of this out. We're not trying to be some sort of radical weirdos. We just want to shine for you, Lord. So give each one of us individual direction by your spirit. Guide us in our steps day by day. Help us to walk in the path that you put us on and not some path that we choose for ourselves. And help us, Lord, to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.